Well, I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we've been making our way for the past several weeks through this, uh, this lengthy and yet very glorious chapter on the topic of the resurrection. And for today's sermon, I'd like to consider just the, very, the, the last verse of the chapter, but for context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 50. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, the year is nearly over. And perhaps you've had opportunity to reflect upon this last year and to consider some of the accomplishments that you may have had. Perhaps you finished an important project at work, or maybe you got a job promotion or a pay raise. Maybe you graduated from high school or uh, received some other uh, important accolade or uh, accomplishment. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, the year's almost over? And you're thinking back and you realize that you have nothing to show for this year. Nothing of significance or value that was accomplished. And maybe it's a little depressing to think that it's going to be 2020 before you know it. Well, I think it's human nature for us, I think, regardless of who you are, that when all is said and done, We would like to be able to look back and say that we have accomplished something. To to, to have something to show that would be of lasting or significant value that you have accomplished in your life. Well, the good news of the gospel today in our passage is that that will be true of each and every one of us. As we stand before the throne of Jesus Christ, he will say, well done. Good and faithful servant, your work was not in vain. Well, as we consider this passage, of course, a bit of context is in order. 
the whole of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was the Apostle's Paul, Apostle Paul's most thorough and detailed treatment of the doctrine of the resurrection. And far from being some doctrine that we tack on to the end of the Apostle's Creed, the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting, the Apostle Paul has shown that the resurrection is the very heart and soul of the gospel message. He has shown his utmost centrality to the good news of the gospel so that if you deny it, as some in Corinth were doing, they were denying the very gospel itself. You see, our glorification together with Christ at the last day is the culmination and completion of our salvation. And so based upon all that has been said, All 57 verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul concludes this chapter by drawing together all of those important truths of the resurrection. And he shows, by way of application, how we ought to live a life in light of the fact that Christ has been raised and that we will most certainly be raised together with him at the last day. And so if you look there in verse 58 of chapter 15, you see he begins with the word, therefore. Now, whenever you're reading in Scripture and you come across the word, therefore, you ought always to look back to see what that word is there for. You don't walk up to somebody and begin a conversation by saying, therefore. No, the word therefore comes after you have established a fact and then you want to draw a conclusion or as a result of what has been said or in light of what has been said. Therefore, I'm going to tell you this. And so this verse is a fitting conclusion to the chapter. But as we'll see as we consider Paul's exhortation, we see really it's a fitting conclusion to the book as a whole. Chapter 15 sort of ends the Apostle Paul's uh, teaching, theological teaching and applications Throughout the whole letter, chapter 16, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is really the conclusion where Paul makes travel plans and sends greetings. And so verse 58 is, is the culmination, not just of chapter 15, but really the entire book as the Apostle Paul gives his final exhortation to his readers. And he, ad- he addresses them as beloved brothers. The Apostle Paul has had to address many serious issues with the Corinthians, taking at times a very somber, serious tone, speaking to them as a father would his children. As a matter of fact, he explicitly said that in chapter 4 when he says that I am your spiritual father and I'm speaking to you as a father does his children. And yet everything he has said has been out of love. As he says in chapter 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and yet have not love, I am nothing. So while on the one hand, the Corinthians were the Apostle Paul's spiritual children, on the other hand, he also viewed them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how he addresses them now as he comes alongside of them. And he says, therefore, brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters, they're included in this. Let's go together in our Christian life. And so what's his first exhortation? Well, he wants them to be steadfast, immovable. You see, the Corinthians were heavily influenced by the ways of the world, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we saw the devastating effects that such influence had upon the church. We saw divisions. 
lawsuits, immorality, idolatry, and the list goes on. And now Paul exhorts them to not be conformed unto this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. They were to do this by taking their stand, being steadfast and movable, not being tossed to and fro, but taking their stand upon that gospel message, holding fast to that message of salvation in its unaltered, undiluted, unchanged form. You see, the Apostle Paul feared the possibility that when he was in Corinth for those 18 months and that when he preached and delivered that gospel message to them, he feared the possibility that they had received that message without fully understanding or comprehending all that that gospel message entailed. Which is what he means in the beginning of this chapter when he says, unless you believed in vain. And later on in the chapter, he admitted that some of them had no knowledge of God whatsoever. And so how is he to solve? What's the solution to this problem? Uh, Either the, the Corinthians not fully comprehending the gospel message or even some of them not even knowing God at all? Well, the solution, of course, is a robust preaching and teaching ministry. As Paul teaches, uh, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to his church. And what were those gifts that Christ showered upon his church? Well, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That latter half of of Ephesians 4 there describes the Corinthians to a T. They were immature in their Christian life. They were ignorant of basic Christian doctrine. Some of them didn't even know God at all. And so what happened? They were tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the fads and and, uh, popularity and all the things that were going on in Corinth at the time. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, you need to be reminded. That's how he started this very chapter, right? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's why constantly he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be confused. He needs to constantly remind them throughout his book. So that's the solution. That's the way in which we are able to be steadfast, immovable, taking our stand and clinging to that undiluted, unaltered gospel message. And yet, as we see the Apostle Paul go on in his closing exhortation to his readers, we see that being steadfast and immovable doesn't mean that we are unable to move or that we are like statues or that we are like the frozen chosen. No, being steadfast and immovable, taking your stand on the gospel, is quite the contrary. Rather, what does that look like? Well, it looks like that we are busy doing the work of the Lord. Look look what he says there. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This connotes a a constant energetic labor. 
The Apostle Paul could have just said, abounding in the work of the Lord. Or he could have just said, always doing the work of the Lord. But no, he ties together both of those words, always abounding in the work of the Lord, constant, energetic activity in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds tiring. Which is why I think the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I think the reason why the Apostle Paul felt it necessary to exhort the Galatians to not grow weary in doing good is because we often grow weary in doing good. And of course, that's because we oftentimes rely upon our own strength. But as we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Corinthians, we realize that we cannot always abound in the work of the Lord upon our own strength, but only through the strength of the life-giving Spirit who empowers and gifts and enables each and every one of us to perform our service, to perform the work of the Lord. And so we see that we're supposed to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. A good question to ask at this point is, what is the work of the Lord? Well, of course, when Paul talks about the work of the Lord, one of the things that that work includes is the ministry of the word. As he saw, as he, as he described that in Ephesians chapter 4, with the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, or even as he describes in chapter 16, when he refers to Timothy doing the work of the Lord, there he's re- describing the ministry of the word, the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. But I think we would run into serious danger if we were to understand Paul describing the work of the Lord in, a, in such a narrow sense to refer only to what I'm doing right now or only to explicitly religious activities. You see, that was the danger. That was ultimately what happened throughout the Middle Ages. The Roman Catholic Church told the, the laity, the people, look, you leave the religious stuff to us. The priests, the monks, the nuns, they're going to do all the religious activities. You do all the secular activities. You do your farming. You make your shoes. You do your housework. And we will be the ones to do the religious work to please God on your behalf. Well, when Martin Luther considered that in light of the teaching of Scripture, he said, no, that's not how the New Testament speaks about the religious life. uh, Martin Luther would say to the shoemaker that you make a good quality shoe, you charge a fair price, and in so doing, your labor brings more glory to God than anything the priest is doing in the cathedral. He, He spoke of this notion of the Christian's calling, his vocation, and how each and every one of us has been given a job to do, no matter how mundane. And when we do that with all of our heart to the Lord, We bring glory to God. We are doing the work of the Lord. And so there's a danger to to think that, uh, that we as Christians, that each and every one of us somehow has to have our own particular ministry. Or that each and every one of us, aside from the daily things we do, or our job or school or whatever it is the Lord has called us to do, on top of that, we need to do some explicitly religious activity. That's not what the New Testament teaches. For one, 
Paul has already told us that not all of us are gifted to do the ministry of the word. He said that back in chapter 12. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Those are rhetorical questions where the answer is emphatically no. Not everyone is gifted. Not everyone is called to do the ministry of the word. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul already said back in chapter 10 that so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, he's already told us that even something as as mundane as eating can be done to the glory of God. You see, for the believer, everything we do, even stuffing food in our face, can be done in the Lord to the glory of God. Even the most mundane activities are radically reorientated with a heavenly focus. And so we do not need to move mountains. We do not need to give away all that we have. We do not need to deliver up our body to be burned for the sake of the gospel in order to do the work of the Lord. We do not need to make radical changes in our life or in our calling to please the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul has already discouraged that. Back in chapter 7, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, content with our station in life, we are now enabled to obey the commandments of God by loving and serving our neighbor. And yet, the key to this contentment, as Michael Horton describes in his book, Ordinary, the key to contentment is to have a goal, something to look forward to or something to look towards to keep you content, something or someone so satisfying that we do not feel the need for constant change or feel the need for more and more. So take, for example, the issue of bond servants. As the Apostle Paul says, look, were you a slave when you were called? Don't think that you need to free yourself or radically change or reorientate your life in order to please the Lord. No, you can please and serve the Lord by being a good slave. That's what he says in Ephesians 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. 
here the Apostle Paul applies a specific situation and tells bondservants who were called as slaves that they can serve the Lord by serving their earthly master. And likewise, masters are reminded of the fact that they have a master in heaven and they ought to treat people accordingly. And the examples can be multiplied time and time again, uh, as Paul had already addressed husbands and wives, how the husband can serve the Lord by serving his wife and likewise the wife, her husband or children with their parents or teachers and, and students or you and your boss. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't like my job and I can't stand my boss. I'd love to be free of this job and maybe be freed up to go serve the Lord in some radical situation. Well, guess what? The Lord has put you in that job for a reason. And he's given you that boss that you may hate. And yet he's called you to obey that boss as you do the Lord. So don't think of your boss When they tell you to do something, think about the Lord Jesus Christ telling you to do that. Don't think of your teacher who's giving you that assignment. Think as if the Lord Jesus Christ is giving you that assignment. This gives you way more motivation to get up in the morning on Mondays. Because you have an opportunity to serve the Lord without having to radically reorientate your life because Christ has done that for you. He's your goal. He's the one you serve. This is your work that he is calling you to do in the Lord. And so when our labor is in the Lord, that is done for, through, and to Jesus Christ, we can be sure that we are storing up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves can come in to steal. Jesus says at the last day that he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So our jobs today, what we accomplish in this life, Jesus says is a little bit. What we get look, look forward to is the joy of our master as he sets us over much in heaven. Now, of course, as we go about our daily lives, as we uh, go to work or go to school or do the things that the Lord has called us to do, of course, there's always the possibility that we would do things not for the glory of the Lord, but for our own glory in order to please ourselves or bring attention to ourselves. And those things would be like wood, hay, or straw that the Apostle Paul refers to back in chapter 3, the wood, hay, and straw that ultimately are burned up at the last day as they are unable to withstand the judgment seat of Christ and have no lasting results. But when we go about our daily lives with the mindset that we are in the Lord, that we are doing things from, to, and through Him, we know, we will know that our labor is not in vain. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that knowing these things, we go about our lives. So the thing is, is we wake up on Monday morning and we forget we, we get caught up in the grind. And we forget the fact that the Lord has called us to serve him, not man. And so that's why it's so important to be reminded of these things. That's why, that's why it's so important to start your week doing this. This is the first day of the week, by the way. We often forget that. We think of the weekend and we think, well, the week begins on Monday. No, your week begins today by being reminded 
that you are in Christ Jesus and he has placed you in your situation in life to serve him, to bring glory to God. And when we go about our daily lives, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether you are a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, whether you are changing tires or changing diapers, you do it as unto the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's interesting how Paul began this chapter by fearing the possibilities that the Corinthians had somehow believed in vain. Now, that's a different Greek word than he uses here. And the idea there was that they didn't understand. They didn't fully comprehend the gospel. But here, when he refers to not doing something in vain, he's referring to having it it, uh, mean nothing at the end of the day. He's already affirmed that the grace of God shown to him was not in vain because of the immense labor that it produced in his life back in verse 10. And yet he assures us confidently that all of our labor in the Lord will not be in vain. That is, we will have something to show for it at the end of the day. But how can Paul be so confident? How can Paul so confidently assert that every single one of our labors, even something as mundane as eating unto the glory of God, will be of lasting significance when he's already told us that the present form of this world is vanishing away. The reason why the Apostle Paul can be so confident that our labor in the Lord is not in vain is because of the truth of the resurrection of the body. This mortal body will put on immortality. This perishable body will become imperishable. And as a result, the labors that are done in this body, in your bodies, will not be in vain. You see, the Corinthians had convinced themselves that the body really didn't matter at the end of the day. That our physical bodies, they're just flesh. We've got to get rid of them. It's not a big deal. And how, how did that uh, end up? Well, we saw either gross licentiousness thinking that they could do anything they want because the body didn't matter, or a rigorous asceticism where they were trying to deprive their bodies of physical pleasure. That even resulted in the denial of the resurrection. Physical body doesn't matter, therefore the resurrection doesn't matter. But as Paul has already shown in this chapter, if the dead are not raised, then our faith is in vain. Same word is used here. And if the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's what it looks like to live a life that is consistent with the belief that the body and the things done in the body really don't matter. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, what is done in the body 
what you do on your daily basis when you get up in the morning and you go about your life, what you do in this body matters. It is of lasting significance. It matters because we are not our own. But our bodies have been bought with a price. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit whom we have from God. And our bodies are united to Christ. And thus our bodies are the members of Christ that he uses to build up his church. And these self-same bodies that we have will be raised and glorified with Christ and presented unto God in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So that's how the Apostle Paul can be so confident that the things you do in this body, in the Lord, to the glory of God, are not in vain. And yet you may be sitting here and thinking, well, what will I have to show for it at the end of the day? Notice how, the, how Jesus describes the sheep who are brought before his judgment seat. In Matthew 25, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? You see, the sheep there are fearing, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that they have nothing to show for it. And they're scratching their head thinking, when on earth did we do those things? You see, they didn't have radical Christian lives. They didn't go off and do missionary service in a far-flung land. They didn't sell all they had. They didn't give their bodies to be burned. They just went about their ordinary life and helped people along the way. And what does Jesus say? What what does he say? He says, and uh, uh, there the Lord, and when, uh, sorry, and uh, in verse 40, and the Lord will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is the work that the Lord has called us to do. Unnoticed, not spectacular, not radical, not revolutionary, but ordinary, mundane Christian service done unto the Lord. And when we do that in the Lord, we know that it will not be in vain, but that Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So even though the goods and services we produce in this life, our GDP for the entire lifetime, will not survive the flames of judgment, no matter how good a pair of shoes you make, they will be dissolved at the last day. The labors that you do, the work that you do, will really have nothing to show at the last day because it will all be burned up. And yet, the labors you do in the Lord, in this body that he has given you, will not be in vain, but will be richly rewarded through the grace of God. Because our bodies will not be dissolved. Our bodies will be raised and glorified together with Christ as we enter the new heavens and new earth. May the Lord, by his Spirit, fill our hearts with gratitude and remind us of our callings in life as we go about loving and serving him, knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. Amen?
Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased to die for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that you were buried and that you were raised and that you appeared and that you will come again to uh, raise us together with yourself. And we thank you also for the grace that you have given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that you enable us to go about uh, uh, serving you, being your hands and feet. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our callings in life, using the gifts that you have bestowed upon each and every one of us, knowing that our labor in in the Lord is not in vain. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.